This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by the podcast La Brega from WNYC Studios and Futuro Studios. Puerto Rico is an island steeped in music, a place where they say even the rocks sing. And from epic salsas to Bad Bunny, you can hear Puerto Rican music all over the world. These are songs about home and leaving, songs about freedom and fighting for it. There's a new season of La Brega. It's the Puerto Rican experience in eight songs. This season takes listeners on an exciting, richly reported, cross-genre adventure that captures the ceaseless creativity, emotional resonance, and yes, La Brega, that are hallmarks of Puerto Rican music across eras and formats. I was a huge fan of season one of La Brega, and am in fact just an enormous fan of anything Alana Casanova Burgess does. So, please, do make sure to listen to season one and two. These are stories about Puerto Rico told by Puerto Ricans from the island and across the diaspora. La Brega, season two, out now from WNYC Studios and Futuro Studios. Listen in English and Spanish wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The crisis in higher education is a multifaceted one. Graduate students trained to be professors cannot find jobs. The vast majority of professors today are not even working tenure-track jobs. Instead, academics everywhere struggle to piece together enough classes, paying a few thousand bucks apiece to survive. Undergraduates leave college buried under debt, debt that today's labor and housing markets make extremely difficult to ever pay off. Meanwhile, major universities and elite colleges have become these leviathan-like entities lording over their cities and towns, operating as real estate developer, landlord, cop, medical provider, and boss. Boss not only to academic workers, but also to so many blue-collar workers whose jobs are often contracted out to third parties. At a time when wealthy universities have celebrated historic returns to their multi-billion dollar endowments, public universities suffer from decades of declining state aid, while many poorer and less prestigious privates face the possibility of extinction. This is the first of a two-part series on the crisis in higher education. This episode is my interview with Dennis M. Hogan, who provides a critical overview of the entire conjuncture. Next up in a few days are Donna Murch and Todd Wolfson, who will talk about how workers at Rutgers are pursuing an industrial unionism model, bringing all campus workers together to challenge the neoliberal university and to fight to transform it into a democratic institution that serves the people. Before we get rolling, is The Dig the most important podcast on the left? That, dear listeners, is the title of a recent interview in The Nation magazine with me, a title I swear I did not bribe them to come up with. Anyhow, it was a really interesting conversation and a rare opportunity for me to answer questions instead of asking them. I will put a link to the article in the show notes and give it a read. Speaking of which, if The Dig is an important podcast for you— please take a quick moment to support us now at patreon.com slash the dig. Those contributions are what allow us to put every episode out free 
with no paywall. So everyone, all of you can afford to listen regardless of your ability to pay. But that means that those of you who can afford to contribute need to do so. What's more, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug if you contribute at least $10 a month. Please contribute now if you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and a contribution of any amount at all gets you our weekly newsletter emailed to your email inbox. You can peruse all of our excellent newsletters alongside our vast archives at thedigradio.com. But the reality is you will only regularly read our newsletter, which you should be doing, if we deliver it to you. So contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. Okay. Here's Dennis M. Hogan, who has been a rank-and-file labor organizer, local union political director, and community activist in Providence, Rhode Island. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow and professor at Haverford College, where he's working on projects about the political economy of U.S. higher education and literature and culture in 19th century Central America. Dennis Hogan, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, glad to be here. To open up with a big, more general question, what was the university and what has it become? What, in other words, characterizes today's neoliberal university and its place in society and in political economy? And then and then what, by contrast, was the prior, I guess, Fordist model and its function throughout the New Deal American capitalist order? I think that You know, to the extent that we want to talk about what the university was and what it's become, we have to go probably even further back than the New Deal era, the Fordist University, and think about a time when a university really was a fairly restrictive place for the education of an elite. This is really the role that the university serves um, throughout the 19th century, uh, especially in the United States, where universities are overwhelmingly private, right? The institution of land-grant universities starts to change that in the 19th century. But, you know, it's not a coincidence that so many of the colleges and universities in the United States are located in New England, the Mid-Atlantic, the strongholds of the WASP elite, right? The university was created by and for those people to educate their kids and to prepare them for entry into the American ruling class. But the university also serves another function, um, which is, of course, as a tool of nation building, as an arm of the state. And so, you know, in the the 19th century, land-grant universities evolved to fulfill some of these roles to educate people in the techniques of, like, agriculture and mining, right? There's a reason that so many of these universities are called, like, A&M, because they are dedicated to imparting sort of useful skills. And so here we have this classic opposition of, you know, the education for itself, the finishing school for a gentleman that's incarnated by the the New England model of colleges and universities versus the practical, technical, trades-based or um, technical-based education that's sort of incarnated by the public universities that spring up in the 19th century. Over the course of the 20th century, the university begins to sort of encompass more and more of these roles in different ways, and then to also develop ties to defense-based research, um, other kinds of like high-flying scientific and technical research. At the same time as the GI Bill sends Americans to college at rates really never before seen. And so that's when we think about sort of the Fordist University that we think about 
a massive expansion of access, particularly to this generation of students who had fought in the wars and who were then using the privilege of the GI Bill, which was, of course, always racially unequally applied in order to get an education. And so the management structure of the quote-unquote Fordist University depends to a great extent on faculty governance as a model that allows the university to run with input from basically very interested amateurs. Faculty are not administrators. They're not professional runners of institutions. They're professional researchers uh, and teachers, but they, to a large extent, are responsible for running universities. And so administrators generally are promoted from within the ranks of the faculty. As the shift to the neoliberal university happens, I think first we have to think about like what is meant by neoliberalism or the neoliberal university, which is a term that I think is frequently bandied about, but often for the sake of saying like, you know, it's somehow a worse version of capitalism. You know, there's capitalism, which is bad. And then there's neoliberal capitalism, which is really bad. But when we think, when I, you know, and this is something I've been talking about with my students, neoliberalism for me really means the channeling of public goods into private hands, the capture of funds, of resources, of benefits dedicated for public consumption by private, often profit-driven actors. And so in the 70s and the 80s, public support for higher education, particularly public higher education, begins to crater. Uh, Some of that is undoubtedly a response to activist movements in the 60s and 70s, like Ronald Reagan pioneers in some ways the defunding of public higher education. When he's governor of California. As governor of California, in part as a response to student activism. And so, you know, sort of the irony of this and what makes it neoliberal is that there is, in fact, an enormous amount of public money or money being channeled through public avenues still in higher education. But what it isn't is sort of direct benefits, direct provision of support for higher education. It's offloaded onto students via debt. It's allowed to basically leave private actors, typically students, holding the bag. And so what I would say is that, um, you know, the current model of the neoliberal university is in part about securing federal student aid, which ultimately students directly are themselves allowed to or are are, are forced to, to sort of to pay back and be responsible for. It's about cultivating other revenue streams, whether it be investment funding, direct, you know, donations or, you know, research um, and medical revenue. And then it's also about erecting sort of a, a, a professional superstructure of administrators who are not from the ranks of the faculty, whose main job and whose training is to run large and extremely complicated institutions because the, the management of an institution that depends on so many different kinds of revenue requires really somebody who's trained to administer it. What role has declining state and federal investment in higher education played in creating and laying the groundwork for the present crisis? What's the scope of the decline in aid that we're talking about? And what what is this decades-long historical context for that disinvestment? Why, in other words, did it happen? It's really two-pronged. On the one hand, there's sort of directly declining enrollment, right, or directly declining aid, federal funding, state funding, uh, where states just look at and the government looks at the budget that they're allocating to public colleges and universities and reduce it. But then there's also expanding 
student populations, even as aid remains either steady or declining. And so, you know, if you imagine it, what happens is you have a certain amount of dollars per student that's allocated, and then students go up, dollars go down, and the average continues to decline. So part of how it's happened is that, like, loans have just replaced grants and other forms of aid. And so colleges are bas- colleges and universities are basically being told to subsidize their own operation through increasing collection of tuition. And, and you know, and I think the really important piece, right, is that what's happened is not that the government has gotten out of the business of giving money to colleges and universities. It's that they've refused to be the ones who sort of backstop it. It's that it's been offloaded onto the students in the form of debt. And, you know, part of part of what the debt is doing is it's functioning as a di- it's serving this disciplinary function. And so to think about how decreasing aid for colleges and universities functions as a reaction to student activism in the 60s and 70s, on the one hand, you know, it, it's just it's just punishing them. Right. It's just a way of saying, like, look, you created this problem. And so we're going to we're going to make you suffer for it to colleges and universities. But it also serves a really important disciplinary function by like loading students up with so much debt that they don't really feel like they can take the risks of engaging in like radical social activism because, you know, they're going to, they're, they're far too exposed to financial penalties if they get kicked out of school or get arrested or can't finish their degree or, you know, graduate with like a quote unquote useless degree. And, you know, this is probably an unintended effect. I don't know. I don't want to know that I want to say, like, Ronald Reagan got together and said, you know, if we make them indebted, then they can't be radicals. But this is certainly, you know, a really meaningful effect and and a a big difference maker in what student activism looks like in the 60s and 70s compared to what it looks like today. Are the student debt crisis and and rising tuitions alike, are they both simply the, the result of universities looking to student debt to replace to replace lost public funding or i mean is it is it principally a story about one income stream being replaced by another or are there also things like increasing administrative bloat which you referenced and and also this this arms race for for the sorts of fancy amenities that can attract full freight paying students are those are those factors playing a role too those factors are definitely playing a role there's also the sort of the ideological difference in what colleges and university education is understood to be offering. And so part of the ideological shift that happens in this sort of era of the neoliberal university is that college and university education goes from something thought about, you know, along the lines of like an entitlement. You know, if you can get in, you should be able to go and to go for free or for a very affordable price tag to something like an investment, right, where you have to spend money to make money. And so if you think about the way that college and universities uh, education, whether public or private, is marketed to students. The idea is that there's pretty much no amount of money that you can spend on your education, investing in yourself, that would be too much because the wage premium uh, of a college degree is still going to pay you back, right? It's it's something akin to like what real estate is thought of, like where it's always a good idea to spend more money on real estate because you'll always make more money on it. You know, part of the problem is that the wage premium for college has actually been declining. And so the investment itself is not as good of an investment as it once was, although it would be wrong to say that, like, people with degrees are worse off than people without them economically. Although it's also true that increasingly the investment doesn't pay off if students are forced to leave college uh, without finishing their program or their degree. And so, you know, the, the, the degree, the benefit of the degree doesn't come 
the debt remains. Um, and so that's part of it. And then there's, of course, the amenities arms race, the uh, administrative bloat, the increasing amount of budget that's spent on activities that are not directly related to teaching and learning. And so, you know, this is principally going on among higher prestige institutions, whether, you know, flagship publics or fancy privates, which is not always to say most selective institutions. There are plenty of like less selective institutions that are still expensive and still, you know, relatively prestigious. And, you know, the arms race looks different in different places, right? In in some colleges and universities, it looks like, you know, a fancy new research center or a fancy new student center. In other places, it looks like a giant lazy river, you know, because the um, there are schools that have literally put in like giant pools for students to hang Please out Please name names. Because, you know, the under... Where are the lazy rivers? Uh, <laughs> I think there's one. I think there's one in LSU. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, the, la- the lazy river is like a particularly... Is a particularly egregious example because it's one of those things where it's like the classrooms are literally crumbling. But uh, LSU put in a lazy river in, uh, in 2017. It's part of the $85 million recreation center. And what makes it particularly egregious is that, like I said, you know, the classrooms are literally crumbling. The, the, the instructional facilities have been not maintained, even as the recreational facilities, the sports facilities, et cetera, have been supercharged. And so this gets to, you know, and I'm anticipating probably a little bit, but this gets to some of the critique of like how universities are governed, right? What is the extent to which people are allowed to have some form of democratic input, you know, over over the decisions that administrators make, you know, whether you want to envision those people as students, as faculty, as other staff employed at the institution, or in the case of public colleges and universities, whether you want to think about like constituents, residents of the state, citizens, taxpayers, pick your group. The issue is that students are not really asked like, hey, do you feel like subsidizing the lazy river? They're charged a price tag. And, and, you know, they may never float down it, you know, but they will likely sit in the crumbling classroom. You mentioned that the amenities arms race isn't happening at all universities or or at least that it's not happening in the same way everywhere. And we should pause now to do something really important, which is to break out what college looks like in the United States, because Harvard and Sarah Lawrence students or to use the example of our alma maters, Reed and Swarthmore students, these are far from the median college experience in this country. What what does higher education look like as a whole? Flagship versus satellite, public, public versus private, HBCUs, community colleges, elite liberal arts colleges versus the ones that face financial ruin every year. What does the sector look like generally speaking, across this huge diversity of institutions and how how are the present crises in the sector being differently experienced and managed in these very different schools and amongst very different sorts of students? Part of what makes it so difficult to get your mind around like American higher education is precisely the diversity of kinds of institutions, funding streams, organizational structures, missions that you're referencing here. And so, you know, if you want to contrast it with like with with countries with a much sort of stronger and more developed public higher education system, 
the idea is that the system is a little bit more top down, right? It's designed in a way where there's like regional institutions, there's like national institutions, there's local institutions, but they feed into each other. They have clear relationships. Whereas in the United States, we have this hodgepodge of different kinds of institutions. And so I think the first thing to acknowledge is that 56% of students who attend college attend college within an hour of an hour's drive of their homes. And, you know, a lot of those students are commuting. Um, so if you think about the college experience, the idea that you like get packed off to some New England state, you know, and, and live there for four years, that doesn't look like the, the vast majority of student experiences. The vast majority of students who go to college go to the college or university that they can get into and that is closest to them. 70% of students go to school within two hours of where they grew up. And so part of what the declining support, and those schools overwhelmingly tend to be public schools um, or some form of public institution, quasi-public institution, whatever you want to call it, whether it's community colleges, two-year colleges, regional, um, state, or city colleges. And so the funding crisis, the declining support for colleges and universities hit them the hardest. And I think what's really important here is that when a student has a local college or university that is the sort of the default option for them and that school closes um, because of declining funding or because of consolidation, they don't necessarily go to the next closest school. A lot of the students just won't go to school, you know, in part because going to school is not necessarily, it's thought of as like one option that students have among others. Um, for the kind of students that's gonna go to an elite college or university, there's no question about going to college. The question is which college? But there's lots of students who go because they have an opportunity, because it's around, because they see a program that's interesting, because somebody directs them to it, you know, because they reach a point in their working lives, you know, whether they're younger or older, where they feel like, hey, you know, I need to do something different and get myself a credential or, you know, change careers and I'll go to the school near me. So, so that those are the schools that are most hit hard, and those are the students that are hit hardest by funding cuts. To shift gears a little bit and think about what the landscape looks like in the elite uh, world or the private world, um, again, we see this bifurcation that's driving the competition among the most elite schools versus the private schools that are struggling to survive. And so as college, uh, as running a college gets increasingly expensive, and as the demands of, you know, keeping up with the quote unquote peer institutions, whatever group that may happen to be for the college that you're at, continue to accelerate, what's happening is there's a sort of a winnowing effect where the schools that are richest and can invest the most in things like maintaining their rankings, uh, keeping their selectivity up, offering new programs and new innovative uh, ways of attracting students uh, tend to survive. Whereas the schools that don't have the resources to invest in that kind of that kind of planning and that kind of expansion of the mission uh, end up getting left behind, and so a few different ways that that manifests is that you know first of all, because of because of the way that like elite colleges and universities operate as a prestige cartel, uh, any other business what you would have is you would have the richest and the largest uh, institutions like expanding, right? So if you are a regular business and you're sitting on tons of capital and you are outcompeting all of your peers, you would expand, you would like franchise, you would move into another geographic region, you would go global, you know, what have you. Harvard would become Club Med. Yeah, yeah, you know, you Harvard would like buy 
other colleges and then like have little Harvards all over the country. And, you know, you do see some of that, right? There is this sort of global phenomenon. There is like NYU, Abu Dhabi. Um, but NY- NYU is willing to be more tacky and day class A than Harvard is. You know, you said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think that part of the difficulty is um, that as the access to the to the elite credential expands, the credentials perception of eliteness declines, you know. And so is there a difference between the person who has the NYU degree and the person who has the NYU Abu Dhabi degree? NYU would argue no. And yet I think employers would potentially distinguish. And so, you know, one thing that I've, that I've been thinking about a little bit recently is like the market for these elite credentials probably looks a lot more like the market for luxury goods than it looks like the market for ordinary goods, where, you know, you have a high cost, high prestige, high value item uh, whose cost, prestige and value is at least partially due to the fact that the supply is artificially restricted, right? Harvard has the money where it could enroll thousands and thousands of more students, but then, you know, it wouldn't be able to accept like fewer than 9% of the people who apply. And then what, you know, what, what would the the value of saying I went to Harvard be if everybody gets to go to Harvard? You mentioned that our, that our system or system of systems or overlapping systems or whatever, that, that it's really particular to the U.S. And I just want to pause to, to underline that because we have a lot of listeners all over the place. Canadian friends, for example, have told me that the way Americans, Canadian friends who live in the United States, who went to college in Canada, have told me that the way Americans, especially who went to more elite colleges, talk about the college experience as a whole thing is just totally alien to them. Yeah, I, I would believe it. You know, I think, um, well, so I have taught in universities in both Canada and in Spain, and it really is, you know, a vastly different experience, right? I mean, I mean, I would say that some of what it looks like is the same, right? You still have professors conducting research, offering classes, teaching students. There still is, you know, an academic culture that I think is somewhat global. But what changes really is, you know, first of all, who the students, who the who the institution is understood to serve, right? Institutions are thought of um, as having this like mandate to serve local students, to serve students who are seeking different kinds of education. The mission is at least somewhat conceived of as a public good. Um, and then, you know, the entire infrastructure of like donors, of naming buildings after wealthy donors, of buying you know, of endowing offices, chairs, you know, what have you. It just doesn't exist because there is no, you know, basis for cultivating that kind of culture around like private philanthropy, f- private philanthropic support for education, which, you know, I would also say, um, and and friends of mine who, who work in like university fundraising, like would not be happy, but like donations to colleges and universities is like among the most regressive form of giving that exists, you know? And so philanthropic giving to wealthy institutions is almost exclusively of, of like reputational laundering rather than like advancing a social mission. And it's not to say, right, that like if you give money that's earmarked for, for increasing access to elite institutions, right? Like if I give, you know, a donation to a very fancy school you know, let's call it Pronston. And um, just so that we're not, you know, invoking anyone by name, 
Um, and I say, you know, this this donation is going to be earmarked for, you know, students who are underrepresented, students who um, come from working class or poor backgrounds. It's not to say that th there isn't some social benefit to that kind of giving. But, you know, ultimately, right, you're taking an institution that has the resources to engage in that kind of mission anyway, and you're giving it extra money uh, in order to, like, put your name somewhere and get a tax write-off. So that culture just doesn't exist in other places. And it really is, it's so normalized for us, despite being really, really bizarre in sort of a global, a global context. Speaking of, speaking of expanding access, student bodies are far more diverse today than, than they were during the heyday of public education, though, of course, that that diversity is very unevenly distributed across these overlapping public and private systems that we were just discussing. But what should we make of that uneven diversification of the student body, which is obviously a good thing, not its unevenness, but the fact that it's more diverse? What should we make of that coinciding with the neoliberalization of higher education? How do those two things relate to one another? Or do they have they just randomly coincided? No, they're, they're, they're directly related. Part of the logic of like education as investment uh, that's so pernicious is that it does not allow us to think about education as a right. So students have a right to a K through 12 education provided by the state, although, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which the state provides that education unevenly, inadequately, and in a way that upholds white supremacy. But students don't have a right to a college education. Um, students who qualify can get federal grants, you know, and, and, and lower interest loans that have some uh, chance for forgiveness. But ultimately, you know, the thinking is still that if you want to pursue a college education, that's something that you're kind of doing for yourself because you're going to get a benefit from it. Um, but the reality of the labor market that students are being thrown into has made it so that college is far less optional than it once was. And so this is not That's what seems so pernicious. That's what seems so pernicious here is that growing numbers of people are being told that college is a requirement without it being accorded as a right. Yes. And I, and and I think the important thing to think about is like we're not just talking about four-year degrees, right? A bachelor's degree is not necessarily required in the same extent to the same extent that it was. But you know, if you want to work in the medical field, right? You have to get at least some sort of certificate, some sort of certification, a year-long program, a two-year program, some kind of job training. And increasingly, employers, and this is a failure of the labor market, increasingly employers have said that they are no longer going to be providing that that kind of training. They're demanding they're demanding employees with that training already. And so again, you know, here's another way in which the the cost and the burden has been offset from like an institution that's capable of bearing it to an individual who's basically being thrown to the wolves if, you know, everything doesn't work out perfectly. And so we have the tuition side, right, where declining support, declining state and, and federal support for public education means that individual students have to hold the bag. We also have the labor side where, you know, increasingly employers' unwillingness to offer training and credentialing as like a, as a routine part of what it means to employ people uh, means that people are then forced to go and get their training and credentialing themselves. And a lot of that looks like, you know, going to your local public school and getting the certificate or the, the, the credential that you need to be able to work in the field. And, and so there's a couple of things I want to pull apart here that I think are really important. 
One is that it has to do with the fact that employers are, are, are no longer like investing in workers over the long term. And so, you know, part of the cost that you bear if you choose to train someone is that if you decide to fire them, lay them off, let them go, restructure your organization, what have you, uh, a year or two down the road, all the money you spent giving them that credential you've thrown away or made available to another employer. So it's way better if you're an employer if the worker has to bear the cost of like doing that training themselves. Uh, because if you fire them, you've lost nothing. Uh, or if you lay them off, you've lost nothing. But it's also true that, you know, for the first time in the labor shortage that we're experiencing now, employers are sort of like the chickens are coming home to roost because employers literally cannot find people credentialed to do the work that they need. And so, yes, the labor shortage is certainly affecting lower wage occupations that don't require any credentialing. Um, but it's really acutely felt in things like healthcare, where there's not only, you know, a real mismatch between like labor pools in regions and the need for them. And, and that is going to only grow as the need for healthcare continues to explode as like the boomers age into, into needing like more and more intensive care. But, you know, also the sort of credentialing race has meant that, um, that there's not even sort of a pool of workers that like are ready. So like, even if you were to throw a bunch of workers who are interested in getting those credentials in to training programs today and give it to them for free, you still wouldn't come close to solving the labor shortage for months in some instances and years and others. And that's why there's such a competition for like the relatively smaller number of workers who already have these credentials. So that's just one example of the way that it's playing out. But I think the thing to take away here is that um, to come back to the question of like the diversification of higher education. Increasingly, students are being thrown into a labor market in which uh, getting some form of higher education is not, an op is not optional, but a requirement for working in even, even sort of what we would think of as like normal jobs, right? Not fancy jobs. But yes, there's a massive difference between a flagship, a public flagship institution that can replace declining state and federal revenue by chasing out-of-state students who then pay full freight, right? Because the, there's no public mission or there, there's much less of a public mission to educate out-of-state students versus in-state students. And so the idea is, you know, we'll recruit some out-of-state students and they'll subsidize the in-state students. CCRI, they don't have that option, right? And the function that they fulfill is more, is at least as essential as the function that the like four-year public flagship, you know, that offers graduate education and specialized research is fulfilling. Because at a very basic level, the workers who like need credentials now to even participate in the economy and plug what are really dire labor market gaps, uh, they're not going for the most part to URI and they're not coming from out of state. They're going to these sort of like locally serving Urban, urban public institutions who are specialized in offering these kinds of programs. We've been complaining about administrative bloat. Everyone is always complaining about administrative bloat. But, but what exactly is going on with these growing ranks of administrators? Who, who's being hired to do what and why? And, and then how does that all change what a university does, how money and resources are allocated, across the university, and then who governs the university? Yeah, so the administrative bloat 
question is one that faculty in particular love to point the finger at, you know, because like the problem is always that there are new administrators and never that like the faculty are to blame. And I agree. (laughs) Um, But part of the story, right, is about how colleges and universities have increasingly divested themselves of blue collar employees and pink collar employees in order to chase uh, increasingly professionalized white collar administrative employees um, to fulfill specialized functions. And so if you look at the composition of who's actually employed by a college and university, you know, especially privates, what you see is massive outsourcing of the blue collar uh, and service work, right? You get contracts with Aramark, with Allied Barton, with, you know, security forces, with with food um, vendors, whatever. And then you don't have to directly employ those workers, which, by the way, means that you're then not subject to the same sort of like labor protections and standards. And like, it's also a way to union bust and just erode the college's responsibility to employing people from local communities. So that's happening on the one hand. So that colleges are reducing how many people and uh, those categories that they employ, while they're also increasing the credentialing requirements for like administrative jobs, because they are asking that the day-to-day running of the institution which is happen- which is getting increasingly complex as the institutions themselves become increasingly complex, fall on this like middle middling rank of administrators who have some sort of like professional degree. And that's not even to get into the high level administrators, right? So so when faculty complain about administrative bloat, they don't mean, hey, you know, we used to have one department secretary and now we have a department administrator, a department administrative assistant and a department manager. Faculty love department secretaries. Yeah, of course they do, because, you know, they, they actually do the work. <laughs> you know, no, fa- any faculty uh, who are listening to this, um, please tune out now. But yes, of course, you know, like the, they are doing the actual day to day work to make the department run which is like precisely what people got into academia to avoid is like doing paperwork, right? Um, Although I I want to be fair to faculty, one of the things that has really accelerated dramatically over the last few years is the amount of time spent doing assessment, documentation, paperwork, you know, and again, you know, when you start to look into this stuff, there's so many paradoxes, right? Even as there's like more and more administrators running around fulfilling these roles, faculty are being asked to do so much more of their own administrative labor. And so the question is like, why? How does that happen? And you know, it's it's somewhat different at every institution. But to come to the question of like the, the higher level administrators, this is where you really see the consolidation of something like technocratic power among university managers. So these are people who you know, sometimes they have an academic background, sometimes they don't. So, and, and, you know, again, that's really different in different institutions, right? In, in elite privates, there's still a premium on hiring high-level administrators who have some academic background, whereas, like, you know, in a Republican-controlled state, you're just as likely to have the, like, legislature appoint, you know, the CEO of, like, a fast food restaurant and be like, we're going to run college like a business or whatever. But these people are the ones who increasingly have this sort of unilateral power to impose their vision uh, from the top down on the institution. And partially, it's because 
things like shared governance have been so consistently eroded over time. And partially it's a function of the increasing complexity of the institutions to the point where like they can no longer be run by amateurs because amateurs would be out of their depth. And by amateur, I don't mean like naive. I mean somebody who is primarily trained in doing something like research and teaching who then takes on some of the labor of helping the institution run as part of their service. You know, you can't have a professor of classics or a professor of physics also look after the investments on the side. That would be a disaster. Not because they're not qualified uh, or they can't understand it, but because they have, they have their own job. So you need somebody whose full-time job it is to look after the investments. Ideally, an entire department of people whose full-time job it is to look after the investments. I figured out years ago that I can't manage the digs QuickBooks. So right, yeah, right. So <laughs> um, I would say step one is get somebody to manage your QuickBooks. Step two is start offering uh, degree or diploma programs. Step three is get accredited, and step four is start collecting federal financial aid and grant money, and then you'll really be in business, and you can have not just an accountant but a whole investment office. If this whole you should go to college or you must go to college model depends on colleges delivering students future earnings higher than they would otherwise have made as non-college graduates and high enough beyond that to pay off their debts, you've suggested already that there's a nascent problem at work here, given the growing share of college-educated people who are downwardly mobile, unable to secure the sort of job that they'd imagine they would be able to, or to, very critically, purchase a home. What does that problem look like, and how, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of different ways. So the first, you know, again, to think about, like, the majority of students, the people who will attend uh, a local two- or four-year institution seeking some sort of, like, very practical job credential. With, for those students, they encounter a lot, of different, a, a lot of different roadblocks. One is that a lot of colleges and universities are not set up to support the ki- these kinds of students, even if they even are specialized in serving them because, you know, the way the academic calendar works, because of the requirements to degree, because of scheduling, because of language barriers, what have you. And so those students, even if they may enroll and they may take on debt, they may not complete the program and then they have the debt, but they don't have the credential. Let's say they do complete the credential. They will find that that credential already sort of has a built-in expiration date, either because they are going to get themselves into like one tier of the labor market, but they will need to go back for another credential to get into the next tier or because they have specialized in something that is a good opportunity now, but won't be a good opportunity later. Federal, you can get federal financial aid and student loans to go to coding boot camp, But if you get a coding boot camp credential now, you know, you may get a coding job for a while, but at some point your skills are going to be out of date and you're going to have to go back and either get another credential or find another job or switch. And that's already begun to happen, right? If you think about the boom of code camps. I, I have a good friend who uh, switched careers and jumped in on the code camp boom. And, you know, they have very, makes very strong, if not promises, suggestions that they will hook you up with a job. And now the tech sector is shedding tens of thousands of jobs. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, it's funny. I mean, Tressie McMillan Cotton talks about this at the end of Lower Ed, and that book came out a few years ago. And since then, the trend has already accelerated, you know, really, really astonishingly, because so many of these credentialing programs are like money grabs. 
Um, and so, and you know, you, you get placed into one job and then it's not, you're not the problem anymore, right? You can't go back and say, Hey, you know, I got laid off, I got fired. Or, you know, the thing that you taught me to code is no longer the like current language. So I have to go back. They're like, yeah, well, you can always re-enroll, you know, and get, take out more loans and get another degree or get another sort of certificate or, or credential. Um, so that's part of it. But then, then there's also the extent to which like these credentials are not that meaningful, right? For, obviously, for something like healthcare, there is a certain amount of job training that's required. But there's lots of instances where somebody's been doing a job as a professional for a number of years, and then in order to get a promotion, they like need just basically a stamp or a piece of paper saying that they have the skills that they already possess. Uh, and then they are sort of extorted uh, by the credentialing system into paying for that basically imprimatur of like knowledge that they already have. It's just true of what it is to be a worker today in the economy. We're requiring people to do these like dizzying calculations of like, well, is it a good risk to do this and do that? And then maybe I can get into this next salary grade, but will I make more than the loans that I've taken out? Or maybe I should go this other route or maybe I should change careers, right? This is all, we're, ba we're basically asking people to become like entrepreneurs of their own life which is not fair to workers who are looking to like get a decent job and earn a stable living and like raise a family and what have you. So, but then, then there's this, then there's the question of like the downwardly mobile so-called PMC, right? Which is a totally different, a totally different scenario. Here you have people who have gotten a four-year degree, in many cases uh, have gone into pretty astounding levels of debt for it, right? Because even if, if you take a one-year certificate program at a public school, you may be in what is a significant amount of debt, but it can never amount to like what a four-year college at a private, a four-year private college is going to charge you, you know, even in the worst case scenario. So you have people who've gone to these kinds of institutions who've obtained a degree, um, in many cases modeled on this like liberal arts or like finishing school model, where the degree itself doesn't credential you to do anything. It merely stamps you as somebody who has gone to college. You know, and, and, and look, I don't want to overgeneralize here, right? There's, there's lots of ways in which even liberal arts educations have become responsive to like the labor market pressures to like graduate with specific skills that can be immediately employed. But it is also true that many white collar jobs require a college degree, not because the jobs themselves demand skills that only people who've been to college possess, but because it's a way of like winnowing uh, out who, like on a class basis, who is able to work in those jobs. It really is just a way of saying like, look, we want someone who's quote unquote educated, right? Somebody who knows how to write an email and can wear like business casual and can sit in the office and like act in a certain way that is like very classed and racialized. That's a big part of what requiring a bachelor's degree that's non-specialized means in lots of hiring situations. And, you know, that's all fine. Like I, I am in, not to say it's fine, but I'm in academia. And so obviously I believe in education. Obviously I believe in the liberal arts, right? I'm, te I'm teaching students right now, a course that's kind of on these issues around colleges and universities, not because I think they'll go on to be college and university administrators, but I think that their lives will be enriched by, like critical, critically approaching something that's really important in their lives. And so I think the issue is not, quote unquote, educating students to do something useless, right? It's not, the solution is not every degree becomes a professional degree. 
because then you fall into the same pitfall as the coding camp. You know, you educate people to do something specific and then their skills get out of date or the economy changes or whatever. Um, I think the issue is you cannot continue to expect people to go into tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for basically four years of exploring their interests. It's not fair. It's not fair to them. You know, it's not fair to to the people who are expected to teach them. You know, if, if, if students are going to pursue education for its own sake, we need to create a system in a society in which they are allowed to do that. And to return to our discussion of like public schools and institutions in other countries with like more developed social welfare states, it's not to say that they get them entirely right or that they're perfect, but there's a lot more freedom for people to get into college and choose courses of study that, you know, may not directly lead to what they end up doing for their career because they want to, because they're young, because they're interested, because they deserve, because people fundamentally deserve an opportunity to like learn about the world and explore things that matter to them. Yeah. I mean, uh, on that note, enrollment in, in the humanities and many social sciences and has been plummeting for quite a while in favor of, of these degrees deemed to be more economically practical, though, though I did just see an article in Axios uh, that there's some some recent signs that this is beginning to shift a little in terms of undergraduate students increasingly declaring non-practical majors. But is this basically a phenomenon of 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 student debt and the increasingly bleak labor market coercing poorer students into ensuring that their credentials will deliver the return that they need big a return big enough on their investment to pay off their loans or which would then leave sort of this pure liberal arts pursuit of critical thinking for its own sake something that's become increasingly the exclusive preserve of students rich enough to afford it? That's part of it. So if you look at the high watermark of humanities majors in American higher education, like English, for example, it's the 60s, it's the 70s, you know? Um, I mean, in the 19th century, almost everybody was graduating with some sort of like humanities-influenced degree. But if you want to look at like when English was like the majority of declared majors— it was really right at the moment when this turned to the neoliberal university starts to happen. Um, and part of that is really just the class character of who was in college at the time. Like, even though there was an expansion of access to higher education relative to, you know, massive expansion of access to higher education relative to who had been allowed to go to college previously, you know, even so, Colleges and universities were overwhelmingly populated by wealthy and middle class students who understood that they were like getting a, a well-rounded education so that they could enter the ranks of the professional world. Um, that is less the case now. So at least some of that is, you know, determined by the changing composition of who's going to college. And so, like, to the extent that the decline, the quote unquote decline of the humanities is a reflection of like increased access to college among like working class and poor students, I think it's hard to be too sentimental about that, right? I would much rather have a diverse academy or diverse higher education landscape that's diverse, you know, along the lines of like race, class, gender, geographical or, um, geographical origin, what have you, um, than one in which 70% of the students major in English, but which is more homogenous. But at the same time, there's a great extent to which 
the increasing specialization in the so-called STEM fields is a policy choice, not to in any way denigrate the STEM fields or my colleagues who work in them. But there's been a concerted push by everyone from politicians down to university and college administrators to funnel students into those programs because they, A, provide the kind of practical job training skills that employers are increasingly demanding out of colleges. And so there's a mutual interest uh, in, you know, we'll train your students. We'll train our students to work for you. Our students will pay for it. And then you'll hire them. And that's great for everybody because the students get a job, you get a worker, and we get a placement. Um, and that is not happening, you know, at the Folger Shakespeare Library. I mean, I'm sure they hire some wonderful people, but they can't hire thousands of people. We would, we would live in a better world if we lived in a world where the Shakespeare Library or any other humanities institution could hire on that scale. But that's another story. So you have this piece, right? The cycle of, of training, placement, and job that is really unique to the technical science, math, engineering fields. You also have uh, a steady stream of like corporate and government money that's devoted to subsidizing research and development in, in these fields, right? Because you're never gonna, you're never gonna produce a breakthrough in the comparative literature department that can be monetized to the tune of millions of dollars for which the university owns the patent. I mean, I would love to be the one who produces that breakthrough, but I, I, I have to say I don't have a lot of optimism about its happening. So there's that piece. And then, you know, I mean, if you go to college campuses, students are being fed a really steady stream of propaganda from administrators telling them that this is what they have to major in. I mean, there's, yes, there's some part of it that is determined by students' interest, students' need to make good on their investment, students' desire to come out of college with a skill that's useful and immediately marketable, particularly if they're like the first in their family to go to college and, and they feel a burden or a responsibility, I think is the, way, is the way I'd rather say it. They feel a responsibility to, you know, immediately begin to deliver on, on, on everything that's been put into putting them in that position. But there's also some amount that's within the room of maneuver, you know, where, where students come to school maybe with a certain set of interests, maybe with a certain background, knowing that they can major in anything. And, you know, from the day they set foot on campus are being told by everybody in positions of responsibility that, you know, the humanities is good for fun, uh, but ultimately they need to be thinking about something more concrete. Right. The attack on the humanities is both this more technocratic neoliberal thing in terms of the way the university is being embedded within the broader political economy, but also at the same time, and very much relatedly, this culture war thing, both a right-wing culture war thing, but also one that the center, and and I don't want to aggrandize this group too much, but even these sorts of cosplaying anti-PMC leftists that uh, make themselves heard on the internet sometimes play into. And, and, and Daniel Bessner had this great New York Times column recently on the decline of history as a profession. You know, Rick Scott, uh, the former governor of Florida, in, in 2012 had a task force that recommended that people who major in history and others, other humanities fields be charged higher tuition at State University. Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin in 2016 said that, quote, French literature majors should not receive state funding for their degrees. Ron DeSantis, a real star in the anti-humanities uh, war, he mocked people who go into debt to, quote, end up with degrees in things like zombie studies. Oh and my goodness. then he cited, cited Obama, who in 2014 
said, quote, Folks can make a lot more, potentially, with skilled manufacturing or the trades than they might with an art history degree. He later apologized to an art historian, apparently. But the point is, there's this political economic thing going on, and very much relatedly, this culture war thing that gets to its spiciest when it's these right-wing attacks on the humanities, but is really pervasive throughout American political culture in many ways. So, first of all, I'm going to out myself as a, you know, stuck-up Northeasterner, but my response to Matt Bevan's, you know, remarks about about French literature would be, like, this is what you expect from a place that has a town called Versailles. Like, the real thing is they're, they're afraid that someone may find out that they've been pronouncing it wrong for hundreds of years. <laughs> My apologies to all listeners in Kentucky. I've been to Versailles. It's a very nice place. And to clarify, Dennis Hogan is a snooty Northeasterner from the infamously snooty island of, of Staten Island. Um, so That's right. It's hard to, you know, come down among the commoners when you've been breathing the rarefied air of the Fresh Kills landfill uh, for your entire first 18 years of life. That said, yes. So there's part of it, right? And I think, you know, historians in general— my dear colleagues in history tend to overestimate the extent to which, like, the mere existence of history, like, poses a threat to right-wing uh, models of, like, national narrative. But there's some truth in that, right? It is it is not totally untrue that part of the reason why the humanities get targeted by these sort of demagogues is because they do, on some scale, offer people competing narratives about who we are what our history is, how we got here. You know, I think that there's at least some extent to which, like, these battles are mutually beneficial or have been mutually beneficial, right? Because it allows both to seem as though they're the the sworn enemies of the other um, and thus perpetuate the cycle of, like, editorial and counter-editorial. But I think it's very important to acknowledge that the, the power is overwhelmingly weighted on the side of the people who control the purse strings, which are not, you know, academic historians, no matter how many excoriating editorials uh, they might write. And this is not about uh, Bessner's piece, by the way, which I think, you know, has a, has a much sort of like more expansive understanding of what's at stake. So to come back to the like economics of it, right? And this, I think we can, we can divorce as much as it's possible to divorce any economic question from political ideological questions. But this we can somewhat divorce from the like straight up ideological culture war battles. It just comes down to revenue streams, right? College, like humanities and social science departments are thought of as cost centers. Whereas, you know, science, technology, engineering, and particularly like applied science things, science departments and programs are thought of as cost, as revenue generators because they bring in grant money, they bring in research funding, they bring in corporate partnerships, they bring in all of this kind of investment. So when a college is looking at like, hey, we've got to develop revenue streams, we've got to build the bottom line, you know, they're going to say, well, what what would we rather invest in? spending money on on something that's going to potentially generate new revenue in the form of these partnerships and these investments and these sponsorships. And then most importantly, in the form of like research breakthroughs that can be monetized. Or, you know, do we just throw money at this humanities department that's constantly asking for more money and that never brings in a single dollar in terms of in terms of like the kind of revenue that we're looking for, both because they'll never produce a monetizable breakthrough and because they're like not going to partner with Lockheed Martin to like train the next generation of airplane builders to read French literature. But to bring the ideological piece back in, 
what that misses is all of the ways in which these kinds of technical and scientific programs do cost the university enormous amounts of money, right? So one, one way that you have to remain competitive for research grants, for example, is by maintaining state-of-the-art systems. So already, like, like laboratories, you know, facilities, the grants are often to conduct the research, not necessarily to build out the facilities needed to actually do the research. And so this is another way in which even this kind of like competition for, for subsidy privileges the wealthiest institutions. Because, you know, at Brown, for example, it was a constant conversation about like, we need to upgrade our research facilities because we're losing out to places like Harvard and MIT because our labs are older and they're not as extensive. And, you know, we have researchers who are going up to Boston to use other facilities rather than doing them here. So we need to invest tons of money in building new labs and, 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 and upgrading our lab infrastructure so that we can be competitive for the grants again, right? This is always the investment mentality of like, you need to spend money to make money. But the other thing that that ignores is like the revenue stream, the largest revenue stream for college and universities still is tuition money, you know, whether it's money that comes from federal grants and aid or money that just comes directly out of student families' pockets, students and families' pockets. Uh, and, and, and when you start to look at it that way, humanities and social sciences departments aren't these major cost centers the way they're, per, per, they're portrayed as. They actually are generating the tuition dollars by like educating huge numbers of students. So even as English uh, majors decline, for example, a very large number of students, even if they major in physics or computer science, are going to take an English course at some point, right? Whether it's um, because they feel like they should read some literature while they're in college or whether it's because they are doing the quote unquote service courses like, you know, writing across the disciplines or, you know, comp college composition. They're going to be educated by people who are in the humanities and the social sciences. Not every student is going to take a class in electrical engineering. In fact, a much smaller percentage uh, of students will. I think there's there's also a, a potentially this powerful contradiction here because what we have is an ideological current that at one level seems to be serving capital's economic interest in the sort of neat way by rendering the university a purely instrumental STEM boot camp to serve capital's right. accumulation purposes. But at the same time, it's undermining this more general, less quantifiable liberal purpose that liberal arts education serves to reproduce capitalist society. I mean, this is something that has been important to the system since the get-go. In fact, it's like the primary thing it used to focus on. So I'm guessing it serves some purpose in reproducing the system. And it's maybe like a case study of this broader contradiction we're seeing in terms of capitalism and illiberalism. Yeah. No, I mean, so, for, you know, first of all, I think, so put, putting the like Republican right-wing ideologues to the side, because I do think that to a certain extent, they actually buy what they're selling. But if you think about like the liberals, you know, the the Obamas, the the Democratic politicians and like social figures, the Mike Bloombergs, right, who want to really foreground these this kind of like very narrowly technical technically focused education as the model you know the hypocrisy is revealed in the fact that they would never themselves educate their own families and children in that way right they want to create one model of education to educate workers and then another model of education to educate the leaders of the you know the next the, to reproduce their class and to educate like the next leaders. And, you know, increasingly that just is like what the economy 
looks like, right? An incredibly rarefied uh, system of education in which wealthy wealthy students and like a select few students from like other backgrounds are allowed to pursue their passions to develop as people to work with like luminaries and to, you know, generally like get this like very highly valued, um, prestigious credential. Another tier in which like ordinary college students are funneled into like getting a technical credential that's going to allow them to fulfill like white collar management jobs. Other students are funneled into like the, the two year and like certificate granting institutions in order to get like a short-term credential that's going to let them get a job that capitalists happen to need today uh, or tomorrow or next year. And then, you know, like roughly half the students who are funneled into either like prisons or low-wage work and who are never given the opportunity to attend college or higher education really at all. That is the system. That's what it looks like. And those are like the groups of students, broadly speaking, that it's designed to serve. And it's very, very difficult, not impossible, many such cases, but difficult to jump between them, to move up the ranks of like the prestige and exclusivity. Uh, you tend to stay in the system that you've been funneled into for the most part. A key feature of this crisis is, is that academic labor has undergone a really massive casualization with roughly, I think, about 70% of professors currently working off the tenure track, most of them making less than $3,500 per course. What's driving this phenomenon? Is it just a cost-saving measure, or or are there other motivations and, and forces at work? I think it might be helpful to your listeners um, to explain a little bit about like what academic labor used to look like versus what it looks like now. Although, you know, perhaps a, a, a larger percentage of your listeners than, uh, I, than average are actually intimately familiar with the system. But for the sake of, of establishing a baseline of knowledge, it was once the case that, um, you know, in the 70s, for example, over 70% of instructors at colleges were either tenured or on the tenure track. And it used to look very predictable. You would finish graduate school, you would get hired uh, as an assistant professor, you would work for a certain amount of time to demonstrate your value to the profession and to the department. And then on the basis of a vote of your colleagues, you would be granted tenure, which would make you essentially unfireable, uh, except in certain extreme circumstances and guarantee you a job for life. Um, and so there are lots of reasons why as the manager of like a fundamentally neoliberal institution that values having a much greater deal of flexibility, that model is bad for you as the boss. It makes workers very, very difficult to get rid of. It makes it very, very expensive to hire new workers because there's an expectation that they're going to be around for the rest of their careers. It makes it difficult to respond to changing curricular needs and changing student interest. Uh, and, uh, of course, the longer they stay around, the more these people expect to get paid. So you have this sort of like situation where the people who have been at the institution for the longest and in some cases uh, are doing the least, not to generalize in any way about um, senior professors, many of whom are extraordinarily active teachers and researchers. Uh, but those, those people uh, who are the least hungry, let's put it that way, are getting paid the most, while the people who are fighting to make it are commanding less. And so the answer to this has been increasing casualization. And when we talk about casualization, what we mean is the replacement of permanent guaranteed work with uh, short-term 
term limited and incredibly unsecure work. And so I think it's also important to acknowledge that this is not actually exceptional about academic labor, but it's just something that American workers have been experiencing for decades now. There's been an increasing turn towards subcontracting, towards hiring, temporary, towards gig working. All of this is just finding its reflection in the conditions of academic employment. Universities neither pioneered it nor perfected it. And so there's not really much of a difference, I would argue, between, you know, Amazon hiring temp agencies to employ everybody in their warehouses so that they can be hired and fired at will, staffed up in times when it's busy and let go in times when it isn't, and to indemnify the company from some of the most, you know, what they would view as draconian restrictions of like fair labor treatment. There's not much difference between that and universities deciding that most of their teaching is going to be done by adjuncts or visitors who they don't have to pay full time, who they have to not give so many benefits to, who can be hired on a term basis and, you know, not renewed, right? There's a difference between not renewing someone's contract and firing them. Um, And yet materially, the experience is the same, right? You don't have a job where once you did. Um, So this is the conditions that are driving what employment in academia, in in college teaching looks like. Um, Because there's lots of ways in which people who aren't even necessarily academics by profession, but who make their job teaching in colleges and universities uh, are also experiencing some of the same conditions. The other thing I'll say is that there's really a broad-based sharing of this experience of institutional devaluation across uh, everybody employed by colleges and universities. So it's not just, it's not just the, the adjunct worker, the adjunct instructor, or the visiting, you know, assistant professor who's going to be there for a year and then has to, you know, pack their bags and go move to a different college across the country next year. It's also dining services being entirely contracted out. Exactly. It's dining services being entirely contracted out. It's library workers who are getting replaced by, you know, student labor and, and, you know, being like attritioned out of being employed by the university. It's security guards, desk employees, all of these categories of workers are experiencing the same drive to abrogate the the responsibility of the employer to the employee to like guarantee an income, benefits, fair treatment, et cetera. It is just the case that academic labor, which has traditionally, especially in the private sector, been non-unionized, has been given the opportunity in an overwhelming way to fight back with, you know, this NLRB. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is On Shedding an Obsolete Past, Bidding Farewell to the American Century by Andrew Basevich. In this book, acclaimed historian, international relations scholar, and past dig guest Andrew Basevich provides a much-needed and comprehensive critique of recent U.S. national security policies in both the Trump and Biden administrations. These policy decisions have produced a series of costly disappointments and outright failures that have destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands around the world and cost U.S. taxpayers astronomical sums of money. 
Basevich provides urgent and critical insights into how these failures occurred and what needs to be done to prevent similar failures in the future. He reminds us that, by understanding the past, we can alter our current trajectory and transform the world for the better. On Shedding an Obsolete Past by Andrew Basevich, out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. How has that massive decline in tenure-track jobs, how has it reverberated into the graduate programs that ostensibly exist principally to produce new professors? In that recent New York Times op-ed, Daniel Bessner recently cited a report finding, quote, that only 27% of those who received a PhD in history in 2017 were employed as tenure-track professors four years later. What happens to, to history PhD programs or, or others down the line when there are so few history and other such discipline professor jobs available? And then what, what what's already happening now? Because that, that statistic looks bleak and like it challenges the very you know rationale for a phd program's existence yeah it is it is bleak it's it's incredibly bleak what is the function of training graduate students in a discipline and we don't just have to talk about disciplines like history or comparative literature but even in disciplines like you know the pure sciences where research is conducted in a primary way but without necessarily promising application, right? Math, physics, chemistry, what have you. Uh, what is the goal of having graduate students? One, to train the next generation of researchers and teachers so that um, it is this, you know, old school apprenticeship model where you, where you're under respected experts in the field who have a certain mastery of the craft of research and teaching, uh, and you're expected to absorb those skills from them. That's one function. The other function is to engage in like frontline teaching um, and to bear a significant portion of the instructional duties of the department. And so either you're teaching sections or you're offering introductory courses or you're engaged in one-on-one -on -one advising and mentorship with undergraduates, which is not only part of the labor that you do, but also in theory, part of the training for the job that you're going to get when you finish your program of apprenticeship. I would also add that it is a major benefit offered to faculty at these institutions that they are given the opportunity to engage in this training. All faculty, I would argue, have at least some desire uh, to reproduce the things that they love about their discipline and about their profession. They want to train people who are interested in their ideas, who are interested in their work, and who are going to carry on their legacy. You know, when you're inculcated into this culture of academia, there is a great premium pl placed on the tradition, on the history, on the ways in which the discoveries and the research and the ideas of people who've come before you have paved the way for your ability to do that. And the advisor-advisee relationship really does, at least notionally, create that bond in an incredibly personal way and uh, incarnate the ways in which like, knowledge and method and craft is passed down uh, across generations. And so when you eviscerate that, you eviscerate the, the ability for any of those things to continue. Now, somebody who doesn't see the value in something like academic research happening in disciplines like history, literature, or even in the pure science would say, well, who cares? You know, too bad. But I would argue that it is being experienced 
by people engaged in that work as an incredible loss of, of, of richness uh, in their lives and in their world that they can watch evaporating before their eyes, whether it's the faculty who are seeing their graduate students fail to secure employment or the graduate students who are themselves on the, on, you know, the business end of the incredibly poor labor market. Now, it's also the case that even a statistic like 27% of all PhDs not being employed as tenure track or tenured professors doesn't give us the whole story because at the best, the most highly respected graduate programs at the places that have the highest placement record, they may be getting 50 or 60% of their graduates into tenure track employment within four years. Uh, that's the best case scenario, which means that you still have, you know, close to a majority of them uh, failing to secure that kind of secure employment. At programs that are lower in the prestige class, which still includes like most programs, right? Because not everybody is is going to be in the top 10 um, categorically. Uh, the placement rate looks even worse. Like in some places, abysmal, non-existent. People are getting these degrees and then graduating into nothing. They're teaching high school, which is, you know, in some cases a really great outcome, but not, again, what you're necessarily being trained to do when you get a PhD in a subject like history. They're teaching as adjuncts. They're outside of the academy forever and, or, you know, as, as a career. And, you know, being outside of academia is not the worst thing that could happen to a person. Uh, in some cases, it can be very refreshing. And I speak from experience in that. But, you know, when you've, when you've invested you know, a decade of your life being trained to do a job and then you're told that like the job doesn't exist, it's difficult pill to swallow. It's even more difficult because it's not as though the job is not, it's, it's not as though nobody's doing the work that the job entails. It's that they're not going to pay you to do it in a way that makes it sustainable for you to live. And so it would be one thing if it was like, uh, you know, we're phasing out this thing's existence. Like, we're not going to teach college students anymore. But college students are still going to college, you know, in, in huge numbers. They're still taking these courses. They're still enrolling. They're still learning. We're just not paying people adequately to do it because we've reimagined uh, in a profoundly negative way what it means to do this kind of, of, te of teaching. You know, this is uh, – it's not like we just need a just transition, you know. We need job retraining and a just transition for indigent academics. <laughs> If we want, and if we want to think about, you know, the project of like diversifying the faculty of hiring professors, researchers, and teachers who look a lot more like what this country looks like and who represent the diversity of experiences that students who come to college have, one of the worst ways that we can go about achieving that is by demolishing the prospects for people to get decent employment after finishing graduate programs, because it's going to have the effect of not only restricting who is able to undertake the, the, the really substantial risk of devoting, you know, eight to 10 years of your life or 12 years of your life to enter a profession which may never employ you, but it's also going to throw up all kinds of barriers for people who don't have financial resources, family wealth, or other forms of like private safety net to fall back on and to stay in the game. And so faculty diversity lags far behind the demographics of this country, in part because of, you know, the fact that faculty tend to stay around for a long time. It's, it's a job that people continue to do into their 70s and, and into their 80s, which is in many cases is great. Um, but it's also because we've created a system 
that makes it functionally impossible for somebody who comes from a background in which they are not set up socially to be funneled into elite academia to overcome the many, many hurdles that are put in place. Something like half of academics, and I would want to double check the statistic, but an enormous, enormous amount of academics have family who are also academics, in some cases, in many cases, immediate parents. And so it really is, in these instances, a family business where you're inculcated into the many codes the many secrets, the many tips and tricks, and the many ways of behaving and carrying yourself and supporting yourself that succeeding in the profession requires. All of which makes it almost impossible for somebody who is first generation, somebody who is working class or poor, somebody who attended a lower ranked uh, graduate program or a lower ranked undergraduate program to succeed. These are exactly the kinds of people who should, we should be recruiting into the profession, both because it makes the profession stronger, because students are going to be able to better connect with people who have the kind of experiences that they've had, and because the work that the people in these instances are doing is good and that deserves to be recognized and rewarded. As long as we continue to attack and destroy labor standards within the profession, we're going to make sure that only those who have the independent means to support themselves outside of work are able to do it, which it would be a, would be a tremendous loss for, for research, for the profession, and most importantly for the students that you know we, we claim to teach and educate. You've written a lot about the financialization of the university, starting, I guess principally, about the growing role played by endowments. And at most elite universities, those those endowments in recent years have been securing just absolutely massive returns. Meanwhile, many colleges have almost no endowment to speak of at all. What do endowments look like at these most elite universities, and how has their increasing centrality transformed those institutions? And then, what does that growing divide between the endowment haves and have-nots mean for higher ed as a whole? Sure. So let's first begin with what endowments look like at these elite universities. One of the things that's really important to understand about both the growing size of endowments and the growing centrality of endowments to like the university's operations is that the concept of the financialized university endowment is a relatively recent phenomenon. So universities have always had endowments uh, which are intended to support the operating budget of the university and you know the university into perpetuity. But the idea that the endowment should be fundamentally a pool of investment capital that is used to seek you know, large large rates of return to sustain uh, and grow that initial pool of capital into perpetuity is a, re- is a is a relatively recent phenomenon, and it tracks the growing importance of financialization in all other aspects of the economy. So, in other words, as more and more pieces of capital, as more and more sources of wealth get put into markets and investment vehicles, that's also true for university endowments. Um, They're no longer like pools of cash. They're now pools of financed capital uh, with everything that that entails, you know, with the risk that that entails, but also with the reward that that entails. Um, They're really diversified. You know, the the proportion of, of endowments that are held in equities and, you know, stocks and investment vehicles like that versus other sort of like lower rates of return, but lower risk instruments have exploded over the last 30 years or so. It had, it was, you know, in the 2000s growing and now it's, it's really dominant. Um, but the other thing is that the sheer amount of wealth under the control of university investment offices 
you know, on the order of, you know, for something like Yale, $40 billion, for something like Brown, $6 billion, for uh, Swarthmore, where I went to, for, to undergraduate, uh, $3 billion, allows investment offices at these institutions to invest in all kinds of exotic, non-traditional, and experimental instruments as well. So venture capital is increasingly a really large uh, proportion of the fund private equity. And, you know, the advantage of this uh, kind of investing is that when you strike it rich, you can hit rates of return that are unimaginable even for traditional stocks. Uh, But of course, the risk is also far more substantial. But, you know, conventional investing wisdom is that if you're investing on a timescale that's forever, you're willing to take big risks knowing that the rewards are going to balance the risks out over that sort of long time scale. And so that's really what it is. And so when you talk about like the university having an investment office, um, it's not a couple of rooms down the hall from the provost where some people sit and do accountancy. It is on the order of, a, of, a, of an investment fund. It's, it's substantial, substantial finance capital that's being run by and for these institutions. And of course, it's tax-free. So there's literally nothing better. I, you know, the Trump endowment tax was was a watershed moment because it did finally begin to tax the capital gains. But for most of the history of these institutions and for the vast majority of these institutions who are excluded from the endowment tax, it's tax-free investment income. So that's what a giant endowment looks like. The effect of having an endowment like that on these institutions is that it has functionally empowered them to act uh, without any oversight whatsoever. Because when you have $40 billion in the bank, you do whatever you want. You can build your own town. You can start your own campus in some other city or some other country. You can buy off any politician who comes knocking. You can you know, build any building that you want. You can hire any professor that you want to. You can recruit as many students as you want to. You can not even collect tuition. You know, I mean, if you look at a school like Harvard, uh, actual tuition uh, revenues make up such a minuscule portion of the income of the university that they could actually just send everybody to Harvard for free and it would barely touch the bottom line. That's the extent to which these universities are not dependent uh, on tuition for their revenue. Now, as we've been talking about, you know, for this entire interview, that is not the case for the vast majority of institutions. Most private institutions are overwhelmingly tuition dependent, which also affects something like the generosity of their student aid policy, right? Because you get federal financial aid, grants, loans, things like that, that um, come through the state. But then typically private institutions go some way towards filling the rest of the gap with their own money from the financial aid office. Um, But if you are dependent on uh, tuition for most of your operating budget or a great deal of your operating budget, your ability to provide generous aid packages to students who need it uh, is substantially affected. And as a result, what you will do is you will admit richer students. And so paradoxically, some of the uh, less wealthy institutions in terms of endowment capital actually have some of the wealthiest student bodies because they're most dependent on on the revenue, on tuition revenue. Although that's not always true either because some of the wealthiest universities also have more students from the top 1% than uh, they do from the entire bottom 60%, which is staggering, despite being you know places in the Ivy League, for example. Not all of the schools in the Ivy League, but several. 
Wait, so just to pause you there, can you draw out that distinction in the the Ivy League? Which ones are spending some of their vast resources to at least put forward the appearance of being these uh, laudable engines of of economic redistribution in which just don't seem to care even though they're sitting on loads of money and just brazenly serve a majority 1% clientele? So there was a New York Times report in uh, 2017. Now, some of these statistics have changed, but the number one school in this respect was Washington University in St. Louis, which took 21% of its students from the top 1%, which at the time was an income of more than $630,000 a year, and just 6% of its students from the bottom 60%, which is everybody making less than $65,000 a year, uh, which, of course, was um, different, you know, given inflation since 2017. One of the things that I actually have to say Washington University will get credit for for me is that they were the all-time leading endowment return getter by percentage of endowment growth in 2021. And they did use uh, a major portion of that money to institute for the first time uh, need-blind admissions to, to start diversifying the income represent, representativeness of their student body. But, you know, obviously they have a long way to go. In the Ivy League, Dartmouth, Princeton, Yale, Penn, and Brown were the, uh, the five schools that had more students from the 1% than, uh, than from the bottom 60%. And, you know, Yale and Princeton are two of the wealthiest institutions on the planet, and Penn, Brown, and Dartmouth are not exactly uh, paupers themselves. Um, but if you look at the top 10 from this list, right, these are not necessarily the richest schools. Some of these are schools that need the tuition revenue, like Washington University until recently. Again, you know, I would bracket and say, right, that like need the tuition revenue is relative to their quote unquote peer institutions. All of these schools, every single one of these wealthy private schools could do so much more to admit and to better serve poor and working class students. But it is also undeniably the case that when you look at a metric like tuition dependence, uh, there are schools like Yale or Princeton, frankly, that have the latitude that they could pretty much send people to school for free, but they continue to enroll in spite of that, you know, overwhelmingly wealthy students. Um, every single school, every single one of these wealthy schools will point to uh, the fact that they increasingly do pursue, enroll, and support poor and working class students. And that's true. Um, but, you know, we also need to have a more expansive conversation about what what justice looks like, right? What economic justice looks like, what racial justice looks like in the context of institutions that have been able to hoard, in these cases, billions of dollars of wealth, sometimes, you know, directly the product of either profit off of slavery or, in, you know, displacement of indigenous people or urban renewal uh, clearances even more recently. So that's kind of how the endowment breaks down and the way that like schools either support or fail to support the, the, the relatively few poor and working class students that do manage to make it to these elite places. The other thing, just to address the last part of your question about, you know, the quote unquote endowment poor schools, outside of the elite, there's huge numbers of private schools that are struggling 
to make ends meet given their relatively smaller endowments. They're going to be a lot more dependent on tuition. They're going to be a lot more dependent on students who have to take out loans uh, and other forms of aid. They're going to end up graduating students with more debt who also have comparatively less elite credentials when they're done. This also has a you know a pretty substantial racial component as well, uh, because so many of these like venture funds and equity funds that some of the most elite Ivy League schools are invested in uh, operate through networks of um, of financiers. Charlie Eaton's book on this uh, Bankers in the Ivory Tower talks pretty extensively about it. These networks of financiers who have ties to the school either through alumni or um, some sort of relationship which then gives that school's capital priority relative to, say, HBCUs that don't have the same access to these elite social networks. And so when you talk about, like, elite colleges as engines of class reproduction, it's not just about training the next generation of, like, lawyers and business titans, but it's also about, like, physically reproducing the capital uh, that it takes to support the mission of being the wealthiest universities in the world. So universities are spending a fraction of these endowments every year on the university. I'm not, we're putting aside whether the spending is on good things or bad things, whether it's on lazy rivers or need blind financial aid. Bracketing that, they're spending a fraction of their endowment on the university's operations, period. So, what good is an endowment if it's not being spent on the university? Maybe. This just gets to a more kind of like philosophical question about capitalism. Like, you know, when I'm laying awake at night thinking like, why do people like Jeff Bezos want to need more money than they can ever spend by orders and orders of magnitude? But but what what is what drives this pursuit of a larger and larger endowment as an end unto itself almost? So there's like a few things there, right? On the one hand, you hire investment people to make money. Their job is to grow the fund. They don't care, you know. I mean, look, actually, it's not fair to them to say that they don't care because a lot of them could make a lot more money working on Wall Street than they make even in the comparatively highly paid investment offices of these institutions. So there's at least some investment in the mission, you know, whether it's whether we, you know, choose to find that notable or not um, or laudable or not, I should say. But look, you hire financiers to invest your money and to make money for you. Uh, that's what they're going to do. They're not particularly worried about what you do with it afterwards. Their job is to make it get bigger. So they are simply doing their job. Um, but also, you know, the theory here is that you don't want to touch the principal, right? Anytime you have a pool of capital, ideally, you live off the interest. Uh, you live off the return. And as long as you don't touch the principal, the capital never diminishes and you're never eating into your savings, right? That's the difference between living off of your savings and living off of your investments. And if you have enough investments, you get returns and you don't touch the principal. And then if you want to go even further and be thriftier, if you don't spend all of your returns, but you reinvest a piece of the profit, then the principal actually grows, which if you can wait it out, means that you get larger returns. So this is the timescale that these institutions are thinking about, right? I can either spend down my money today and start to to eat into my savings, or I can tighten my belt a little, and in 20 or 30 years, we'll have even bigger returns, and we'll be able to do even more. Because ultimately, right, who would you rather be? You know, the person who's living off spending 7% of $1 billion, or the person who's living off spending just 1% of $5 billion? Like, it's an easy choice. And so the goal is always to push endowment draw as low as possible, right? Seven percent, if you spend 7% of your endowment, 
you have to get 7% returns or else you're spending down the endowment, which you never want to have happen. But the problem, ultimately, right, because to engage with these arguments on their own terms is to begin to see the logic. So like, who would want to say that the endowment should be spent down? But ultimately, part of the problem is really a governance problem. There's never a mechanism for deciding when it's time to dip into the savings or the rainy day fund. It's almost always at the discretion of either the investment people, the finance office, or the high-level administrators who, you know, who make the, the major strategic decisions. There's no opportunity for students who need support in times of, say, I don't know, a global pandemic, for faculty who are struggling to make ends meet, for workers who are living on poverty wages, uh, or for the communities who are, you know, enduring the brunt of, like, college expansion and, uh, you know, urban real estate acquisition policies to make any kind of decisions about when it's time to use the largesse of the institution to pursue a social mission. That decision is kept carefully guarded inside a room, which is inside a further locked room that most people never even get to the outskirts of. One last question on endowments. Why why have universities been so resistant to divestment campaigns? Most recently, fossil fuel divestment demands. I find it hard to believe that fossil fuels are absolutely essential to high returns. I mean, there are a lot of, like, I think, real politic arguments that would suggest that fossil fuels are becoming an increasingly risky investment. Is it is it about something else? Yeah, it's about power. It's about control. It's about the ability to unilaterally decide what gets invested in on the basis of what makes the most money. And so colleges and universities are extremely resistant to aspects of their endowment spending being politicized, because once you open the door to politicizing endowment investments, then you can begin to do it for any topic, whether it's fossil fuels, whether it's Palestine, whether it's companies that have benefited from, you know, their role in the global slave trade, any of these, whether, you know, whether it's companies that have been targeted for their support for Republicans or right-wing dictatorships in other countries or their, you know, complicity in like gentrification and displacement, like once you start to open the door to saying you can't invest in this because of that reason, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, well, where can you um, ethically and equitably invest? And like the answer really starts to be nowhere because there is no real ethical finance capitalism in a world where like capital's need to accumulate is causing like endless depredation across the planet and has been for centuries. That's where, you know, the 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 need to have an endowment at all intersects with the like purported mission of social good uh, and like very liberal values that uh, these colleges proclaim and, 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 and claim to hold. And so it's not that they are resistant to themselves making certain decisions about where is going too far because, you know, there are certainly things that they might divest from, you know, because it becomes a PR issue or they just feel gross about it. Uh, but they don't want those decisions to be made by activists or anybody else in the community uh, because, you know, ultimately uh, that has to be a financial decision, not a decision made on the basis of like a social justice campaign. Something you've referred to a few a few times already is another key way that wealthy universities have strayed beyond beyond their ostensible core educational mission into seemingly just brazen profit-making opportunities, and that is through real estate. We have the so-called University City neighborhood in West Philly, adjacent to the University of Pennsylvania, Harlem, north of Columbia, 
just all the area around NYU. And I'm sure there are a ton of other examples. Here in Providence, Brown has been expanding downtown and across the river, all while being exempted from property taxes, either largely or or entirely. I'm, I'm not sure. How and why did universities emerge as such a force for urban redevelopment and real estate capital? And and what about more broadly, the the role of the university in their surrounding neighborhoods as, as not only landlord and developer, but also policeman, healthcare provider, employer? This is, I think, a crucial part of talking about what universities do and the role that they fulfill in our society today. Because, you know, on the ideological level, universities would tell you that they are primarily sites of research, teaching, education, and learning. Whereas if you look at the actual revenue streams and the balance sheets, it's very clear that universities, while they do fulfill those functions, fulfill many, many other functions beyond that, as you yourself said, right? As as employer, as policer, as real estate developer, as landlord, as healthcare provisioner, um, these are all businesses that universities are in increasingly. Part of that is just about diversifying the revenue stream, about chasing the thing that makes the most money, um, because universities understand that they have to continue to grow, or else they're going to get eaten by the next m- most bigger or powerful university. There really is a race to the top and a race to the bottom happening uh, among these institutions. But, you know, that being said, so much of it has to do with the history of the ways that, like, cities have been reimagined, redeveloped, and and restructured over time, whether you want to talk about in the post-war era or in the, like, 90s um, and the 2000s. I mean, to talk about Providence, right? So much of, like, Buddy Cianci's art city reimagination of Providence in his second uh, mayorship had to do with capitalizing on Providence's reputation as not only a place where there's arts, but also a place where there's a great art school, a place where there's a great Ivy League university, a place where creatives and, you know, different kinds of thinkers can feel welcome and make the city their home. Universities across the country have played starring roles in these kinds of reinventions and transformations. That was the sort of like 90s, 2000s model. The model now is the Eds and Meds model, the high-tech research park model, the acquire a hospital system model. Um, That is where the real money is, which is why if you look at what Brown has been doing now, um, and just to give context for listeners who are not uh, intimately familiar with the ins and outs of Rhode Island politics, over the last several years, Brown University, which has traditionally been, um, and I, you know, I'll speak to this case because it's the experience that I've had most directly as a, as a graduate student and an organizer in on that campus. Brown had traditionally been what was what they had called a university college, meaning that they were a college that served some of the functions of the university, where the focus was overwhelmingly on undergraduate education. Over the last couple of decades, Brown realized that that model was really endangering their ability to compete with their peers. And so, you know, if you ask somebody at Columbia, who's your peer? They'll say Harvard, Princeton, Yale, uh, Chicago, maybe Penn, right? If you ask somebody at uh, Brown, who's your peer? They'll say uh, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Penn, Chicago. If you ask somebody at Harvard, who's your peer? They'll say no one. (laughs) If you ask somebody at Yale, who's your peer? They'll say Princeton, you know? And so there is this aspirational model here where 
you know, within this extremely small network of extremely elite universities, they're always looking to try to get into that top three or top four. Brown realized that, like, if you don't end up looking a lot more like like Penn or Columbia, you're going to end up looking a lot more like Dartmouth. Nothing against Dartmouth. It's a great school, but it does not command the sort of like massive university presence that these 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 other larger, richer institutions do. Yeah. Brown didn't ha- Brown didn't even have a medical school until the early 70s. That's right. So. Brown did not have a medical school. Brown uh, still doesn't have a law school. Uh, every so often, I will tell people I went to law school there, just to, just so that they know what kind of qualifications they're dealing with. Um, but Brown, you know, doesn't have a law school. The School of Public Health was only founded very, very recently in the last couple of decades, maybe even the last ten years. I, I, I would have to look that one up. And they still don't have a hospital system, right? So, what differentiates Brown from Harvard, from Yale, from Columbia? from Penn, no medical system, uh, from Hopkins, no medical system, you know? And so over the last few years, Brown has been aggressively expanding into the downtown. Now, this is part of a trend in general of universities wanting to have more of an urban downtown presence and to build out to build out these urban knowledge districts. And so Brown, not to be outdone by its, by its peers, has gotten into this business partnering with these public and private entities to redevelop the jewelry district. Providence used to be the capital of of costume jewelry in the United States. Now that district had stood pretty much disused. Um, Brown has aggressively been not only buying up properties and redeveloping them, but also, you know, putting in new medical labs, new bio research centers with the hope, first of all, to begin to profit off of some of the work and the discoveries being done there, but also as part of the play to connect to a medical center. I mean, Brown was a partner in the proposed merger of two major hospital systems in Providence that would have consolidated 80% of the hospital market under one under one entity. And the reason being- Of Care First and Lifespan. Care New England and Lifespan. And the reason being that ultimately Brown would like to begin to get into the game of owning a medical center because they're real. I mean, what- Federal student loans are to colleges and universities, Medicare and Medicaid dollars is to medicine. And so if you can combine those income streams, you can become very, very well-resourced very, very quickly. That ultimately, I think, is the goal. And I don't think it's, it's entirely speculative to say that. And so this is just a case study, right? This is just one example of a way that, first of all, having the resources in the form of endowment money um, and other kinds of, you know, large agglomerations of, of, of non-taxable capital allows you to act in a way that builds businesses, builds buildings, redevelops whole cities, invites in partners to act as vendors or tenants, and then creates an environment in which the kinds of workers and students you hope to attract will feel comfortable uh, is enabled. It's right. These things are all enabled by the kind of resources that only extremely wealthy schools have. Second, it is a play to continue to compete in what is, you know, a, a really cutthroat market uh, where I think colleges read the writing on the wall. The other piece is that there is a coming enrollment decline that's going to happen uh, as demographics shift over time. A school like Brown is likely not going to be affected because there will always be more school. There will always be more students looking to go to extremely prestigious schools uh, than there are spots in those schools to seat them. But many, many private colleges and universities, especially in the Northeast and in the Midwest, are definitely going to feel a contraction. 
And I've already heard from a professor at a not-so-prestigious small liberal arts college that the administration is using the so-called demographic cliff as a stick to beat the union with in, in bargaining. I mean, I find that entirely unsurprising. You got involved in university politics at Brown, where where you and your, your colleagues successfully organized the first Ivy League grad student union. And you won with a comfortable but not giant margin. But recently, there's just been a, a string of grad student organizing victories just blowing up from, from the massive UC grad student strike to the recent victory at Yale, where where the union won by enormous margins, just like authoritarian dictatorship fake election <laughs> margins some of these grad students are starting to win by. What's changed? Is is it, a, is it about a broader political and, and cultural change around young people's attitudes towards unions, something that has you know been evidenced all over the place from Amazon to Starbucks workers to just the straight up polling around favorability towards unions? Or is it more specifically that academics, particularly grad students, relationship to the job has changed? Well, so one of the things is there was a big uh, screw up at the NLRB ballot printing factory, and they only have yes options, uh, but they only sent them out to the to the academics. Um, no, it's 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 really extraordinary. And I would also say, just by way of 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 connecting some of the dots, that the same work that I was doing with the union is what got me interested in university finance. Um, because I was sitting on university committees as a graduate student representative, where these questions of financial investments, of endowment spend, of budgets, and of strategic directions were being openly discussed. And it was an incredible learning experience, both in the realities of how these decisions are conceived by administrators, and also of the limited power that even these um, relatively, actually, given other institutions' operating procedures, relatively transparent governance structures offer, right? That there, I didn't feel that there was really an opportunity to contest budgets being written on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars as like a graduate student who was being allowed to sit on the committee for two years to talk about, you know, where we're going to invest $6 million this year. But, you know, that being said, these two things are intimately related, right? The ability of labor uh, across the university to exercise some form of leverage to begin to contest top-down administrative decision-makings and the increasing centralization of administrative decision-making power among a small handful of extremely empowered technocrats, uh, which is not, I would I, I want to be clear, a term of derision, right? It is a term of art. These are highly trained, highly competent people. I'm not merely lobbying invective. And so what's making graduate students vote so overwhelmingly for unionization right now? I think the pandemic is undeniably a major part of what's going on. Um, I think that part of what we encountered when we were organizing is there was still a great deal of trust between graduate students who'd come to the institution and the institution itself. So when the institution was able to campaign against the union, it was able to leverage a positive relationship that students had with their advisors, with deans, with mentors, with their own students, uh, and to say, look, you know, you really don't want to hurt your ability to continue to do this work. Uh, and a union would interpose some sort of third party, right? A classic third party in the union strategy, uh, which would make it harder for you to be effective as a graduate student, as a mentee, as an apprentice, as an instructor. As the job market in several key academic fields, not only the humanities, has continued to crater, 
as people have seen much more exploitative relationships play out between academic employers and instructional staff, and particularly as the pandemic revealed universities, you know, widespread inability to really respond to student needs and worker needs, uh, I think that that people have had a moment where they're just like, they've had it. They no longer have faith in the ability of these institutions to safeguard their interests. Because I think we can't forget how quickly people were shoved back into these workplaces. This is particularly true in the STEM fields. Where the change has been pretty dramatic at a lot of universities. Yeah. But I mean, the STEM fields, right, they, I mean, in the humanities, we were able to continue to be remote during COVID for a really long time. We were able to conduct classes remotely, do research remotely, have contactless pickups of books at the library, all of that stuff, which, you know, I would add, as always, underwritten by an army of workers who had no choice but to work, but to work not remotely. And so these, these workers, you know, made it possible for people like me uh, in the humanities to work remotely. But in the sciences, people had to go into labs. They were in labs mere months after, you know, COVID really began to hit. And I think that for a lot of people, they were forced back to work at a time when they were still not sure that it was safe or if they were comfortable with it. And that really changed their relationship to their employer. Now, many colleges and universities did a lot to offset the effects of the pandemic. You know, arguably more than many employers who, as soon as they were stopped being required by law to provide accommodations, instantly stopped. But I think relative both to the mission that they claim to have, as well as to the rhetoric of like care, concern, and paternalism that they consistently deploy, the failure to safeguard the interest of, of, of workers, whether academic workers, non-academic workers, was staggering and has, 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 has really changed um, people's relationship. And then I think there's a, there's a micro-generational thing at play too, right? The people who were voting in graduate student elections five years ago uh, are not the people who are voting in them now. The people who are voting in them now came of age during COVID. They came of age after, you know, the 2016 election and the Bernie Sanders presidency. They're much more pro-union or the Bernie Sanders presidential run. See, I, I, I accidentally willed myself into a world where Bernie Sanders had been president. But they're, they're, they're in an environment that's just much more friendly to not only labor organizing, but forms of collective action that challenge power in concrete ways. And that, I think, is a big part of it. There have been a number of conflicts within grad student unions over, over whether to approve contracts, something that we saw at Columbia and then most recently at the University of California. And I don't want to get into a ton of detail on this, including because I know I have listeners on all sides of these disputes, and, and we also don't have time to explore them in depth. But what's your general analysis of, of the nature of these conflicts? I would similarly attempt to avoid to the greatest extent possible taking sides in these disputes because I do properly view them as for the members of the unions who are going to live and work under these contracts to decide. That said, one of the things that I think really is different for academic organizing versus traditional union organizing in which, and even the word traditional there has a lot of weight, right? Because what is traditional? There's a new work environment and there's a working class that has a relationship to that working environment. And I do think that like unions increasingly are understanding that they can, they need to adapt, right? And even as they fight 
to provide lifetime jobs for workers that offer security, dignity, and a path to a decent retirement, many, many workers are confronting conditions of precarity where they're going to end up in jobs for only a short period of time. And that's true of many, many forms of academic employment, which means that the struggle over this particular contract can become really high stakes because people may only live and work under one contract or two contracts. They're not going to be at a place where they see contracts build over time. And so if you're going to work at a job for 20 years and you negotiate a contract with your union and you don't get all of what you want and you don't even get most of what you want, you have faith that when the next contract comes around, you're going to get more of it. And when the next contract comes around, you're going to get more of it. And by the time you retire 20 years later, you're going to be working at a place that is co completely transformed from the place where you started working 20 years ago because each contract is going to be stronger as long as you can keep building your union. And you're also going to have other workers who've been there longer than you who remember when things were even worse than they are now. And they're going to tell you, hey, you know, when, you start, when I started here – we didn't have retirement. Now we have retirement. And we didn't get it right away. We got it over time. And so there is an implicit acceptance of a gradual increase in the quality of a contract over time. But I do think that in these academic contracts, the, the need to transform the institution is so urgent. The conditions under which people are working and living are so dire. And the demands are, in some cases, so radical and I don't say that as a way to disparage them, but to say that these workers take very seriously their duty to reimagine what the institution can be, who it should serve, and what can be achieved by contesting it through labor power, that inevitably what they're able to actually get on paper falls far short of what they can imagine. And I think that the conflicts that we see are working out of, of what workers want to, want to throw down for and what they're willing to wait till next contract to fight for again. I want to close out by talking about the broader politics, including the cultural politics of, of higher ed. Universities, of course, have, have long been attacked by the right for producing rebellious or unpatriotic or more recently woke subjects. I very clearly remember being in college in the early aughts and there being this extremely energetic right wing reaction against any professor who who was deemed to to be deviating from post 9-11 patriotic norms. But in these days and and, and Florida very much comes to mind. It's a simultaneous attack on on the university and very much on on K through twelve schools, teachers, students, kind of around the same themes. Why, why is the right so dedicated to fighting culture wars in in education? And then how how should we on the left dedicated to substantive rather than superficial liberal forms of racial and gender ju justice struggles tethered to these economic fights? How should we be responding to those right-wing attacks as, as we fight to transform the entire higher educational system, you know, as you were suggesting these more expansive grad student demands are pointing towards, so that the university is entirely transformed to serve a diverse and expansive democratic public instead of, of simply reproducing the elite and serving the interests of capital accumulation. Why does the right continue to fight culture wars? Because it has, it has very little to offer to people who are not extraordinarily wealthy in the form of material benefits. It has the psychological benefits of feeling part of a team that is wreaking havoc on the other team. It has this, the well-known you know, psychological seduction of fascism that seems to be uh, omnipresent in capitalist society. 
Uh, and it has, you know, the the wages of whiteness, right? Which it does not want to do anything to, to harm. And so right-wing demagogues can create a specter of like a left-wing communist infiltration and takeover of all forms of education and then pretend to be doing something about it. You know, they can, they can for at least a time, turn the attention away from the fact that they enable student debt, medical debt, people to lose their homes, you know, Ron DeSantis, like destroying people's ability to get homeowners insurance when they live in areas that are like on the front lines of climate change, because he's making it impossible for like people to get like last line of defense kinds of insurance so that people like lose their houses and their entire life savings and empowering like all manner of like capitalist cretins to just like visit unbelievable suffering on the very people he's supposed to be representing. And, you know, rather than have any conversations about that, he wants to have a conversation about stop woke or, you know, searching professors' emails to like see if they've ever been involved in DEI work. It's probably an overused term, but it is a witch hunt, plain and simple, right? It's the creation of an internal enemy that doesn't exist, that is almost entirely notional, uh, and then the, deploy- the, the deployment of massive state resources that could be better used doing fucking anything else to like perpetuate the, the persecution. And it's not by coincidence that the things that they're targeting are things that celebrate black and queer identity because these do ultimately, and trans identity, you know, I, I don't want to conflate them, but these do ultimately represent major threats to the vision of a patriarchal, white, normative society that DeSantis and, you know, his supporters want to impose. Despite the fact that, you know, even many major coalition, like blocks of the Republican coalition don't even look like that, right? And so I want to be careful about asserting that the mere existence of like radical perspectives or radical critique within the university by its very, uh, by the very fact that it's there poses a threat to the system. Because one of the things that I think the university has proven incredibly good at doing, uh, and especially the liberal university over the last few decades, is finding safe places to cordon off dissent, to both profit from the existence of that dissent, and then also to neuter uh, some of its most uh, radical possibilities. That being said, I think the virulence with which right-wing politicians want to fight against the mere existence of, you know, CRT or queer studies or black studies to eviscerate the African-American history AP course, I think it does suggest that there is still some really important radical potential that's contained within these forms of, of history, of critique, of teaching and learning. And, you know, they're willing to do a lot to prevent it from getting to people. I think whether it's effective is another question. It certainly is effective at perpetuating the politics of like white revenge, perpetuating panic about queer people in classrooms or among students or trans people in bathrooms. But it didn't seem to work in the midterms. But electorally, it hasn't actually been that effective on a national level. It was level. just that one, that one Youngkin thing, you know, and everyone was like, oh, this is it. This is it. Right, right. Because classically, right, something happens in one wealthy suburb and the media instantly descends to, like, spread the analysis across the entire country. 
You know, similarly, I think DeSantis could basically do a lot less of this stuff and would still be winning by the same margins because Florida's like cooked now um, for the Republicans. But, you know, maybe this is where I reveal myself to secretly be, you know, just like a liberal who loves elections. But I do think that in this recent electoral cycle, Republicans asked everybody in this country to vote for hate. And most people said they didn't want to. I think most people, despite the fact that they have all kinds of complicated ideological relationships and are beset by mystifications and, you know, vote against their own interests all the time and are captured by the, you know, two parties, which like what famously the second, the, uh, the Republicans and then the second most enthusiastic capitalist party in the history of the world, the Democrats, as Ronald Reagan's advisors put it. Despite all of that, I think most people are decent, you know, and when they get the chance to like reject something that's clearly hateful and vile, they do because it's gross. And at least that's kind of the hope that I cling to. Uh, And I think that to the extent that universities can be an engine for putting us into relation. Oh, and this is one other thing I wanted to say. Why are universities a good target? In part because people are alienated from them, right? They feel that they are bastions of elitism. They feel that they are doing work that's fundamentally disconnected from the realities that people live. Part of that is pure is pure rhetoric, right? It's, it's just the creation of an illusion because so many of us have relationships to colleges and universities even more than we would think, whether it's, you know, the kinds of two and four-year institutions we've been talking about all the way up to, you know, working at a local school or whatever. But I think there's also a reality that as we have continually cordoned off the benefits of higher education for more and more people, or allowed people to experience the relationship with higher education as somehow predatory, whether it's because the school destroys their community or because they're saddled with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, or because they simply can't access higher education no matter how badly they might want to. That allows higher education to become a political target for Republicans. And I think that if we want to think about how we can put colleges and and universities into more authentic relationship with who the most people in this country are, to the extent that we can achieve that, we will also have the side benefit of beginning to make these attacks far less potent because people will have an experience of what these institutions are like that goes beyond the caricature that they're fed. Well, Dennis Hogan, thanks very much. Oh, no, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dennis M. Hogan has been a rank-and-file labor organizer, local union political director, and community activist in Providence, Rhode Island. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow and professor at Haverford College, where he's working on projects about the political economy of U.S. higher education and literature and culture in 19th century Central America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the communists have not invented the intervention of society and education. They do but seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. 
Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 